now it's time for our new serial. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. It has always been a matter of considerable wonder to me that while I can stand and face a man pointing a loaded pistol at my head with a certain amount of composure, the sight of a dentist's chair never fails to reduce me to a state of craven, trembling terror. What name, sir? Hercule Poirot. Just take a seat, sir. Mr Morley will call when he's ready. The waiting room was indescribably gloomy. A military-looking man with a fierce moustache buried his face in the times as I sat down next to him. A young man stood by the table, flicking over the covers of the magazines. An unpleasant and dangerous-looking man. Mr. Piero, this way, please. I felt as if I had been summoned to the guillotine. The boy led me to the lift and took me to Mr. Morley's surgery on the second floor. Sit yourself down on the chair, Monsieur Poirot. Oh, thank you. Any special trouble to report? Uh, no, 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 nothing special. Open wide. Huh? Wider, please. Uh-huh. That's better. Mm. Uh, this filling is wearing down a little. Nothing serious, though. Uh. Gums are in good condition, I'm glad to see. Mm. Ah, there's some trouble here. Uh, Is it giving you any pain? Uh, no, 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 not at all, no. Well, I'm surprised at that. But we can soon put it to rights. And he reached up for his drill. I was rigid with terror. But there was no pain. And it was soon over. I'm making up your filling myself this morning because Miss Neville has been called away. Some relative of hers in the country is struck down with something or other. And the patient before you was late. The sort of thing that always happens on a busy day. <laughs> I'll tell you something I've always noticed. The big people, the important people, never keep you waiting. And this morning, I've got one of the most important of the lot. Alastair Blunt. <laughs> always precisely on the dot and such a quiet unassuming fellow you'd never guess that he was the head of the greatest banking concern in England and when he sits in that chair all he wants to talk about is his garden rinse please mm -hmm. mm. it's the answer you know to all their Hitlers and Mussolinis we don't make a fuss over here look how democratic our king and queen are and how seriously they take the job. I never fail to be impressed by the way they always remember names and faces. They never forget or make a mistake, mind you. Neither do I. I don't remember names, but it's remarkable the way I always remember a face. One of my patients the other day, for instance, not someone who'd ever been in my surgery before, but I knew I'd seen the face somewhere. Can't put a name to it yet, but it will come to me. Rinse again, please. Mm. 
Well, I think that's taken care of that. Just close, very gently. Mm -hmm. You don't feel the filling at all? No, 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 no. Very good. That will be all then, Monsieur Poirot. <sighs> Until the next time. I felt like a man set free. I walked down the two flights of stairs with a debonair step. The military gentleman had evidently been dealt with by Mr. Molly's partner, but the restless young man was still there. And in the corner, a well-dressed man was reading The Field. Mr. Blunt? So that was the wealthiest man in England. A man who could say yes and no to governments. And yet he had to go and suffer in the dentist chair like everyone else. As I came out of the house, a taxi drew up. A foot protruded from the door, a neat ankle and quite a good quality stocking. The shoe was shiny new patent leather with a large gleaming buckle. And the old nursery rhyme flashed across my mind. One, two, buckle my shoe. As she got out of the cab, she caught her shoe and the buckle was wrenched off. Oh, that's your buckle, madame. Oh, how very kind. Thank you. Alas, she did not live up to the promise of that neat ankle. Untidy grey-yellow hair, unbecoming shapeless green clothes. I climbed into the taxi she had vacated. Ah, I was free. Free from Mr. Morley and his drill for the next six months. It's Jap. I hear you went to the dentist this morning, is that so? Oh, Scotland Yard evidently knows everything. Dentist by the name of Morley, 58 Queen Charlotte Street? Yes, that is so. It was a genuine visit, was it? I mean, you didn't go to put the wind up him or something of the sort. I would never dare to put wind up a dentist. I had a tooth filled. How did he seem to you? Manner much as usual? Quite as usual, yes. Why? Because not very much later, he shot himself. Oh, mon Dieu. That surprises you? Most certainly. I'm not too happy about it myself. I suppose you wouldn't like to come round. Where are you? In his surgery. I will join you immediately. Well, there you are bullet hole through his right temple. And that is the pistol? Yes. Seen enough? Oh, yes, quite enough. All right, you move him now. So, tell me. He could have shot himself. There were only his fingerprints on the gun. But you are not satisfied? There doesn't seem any reason why he should do it. He was in good health. He was making money. He wasn't mixed up with a woman. At least not so far as we know he wasn't. He wasn't moody or depressed. That's partly why I wanted to hear if you'd noticed anything. Oh, no. When did it happen? Can't say exactly. Nobody seems to have heard the shot. But there are two closed doors between here and the passage, with bays fitted round the edges to deaden the screams of the victims in the chair, I should imagine. Three, four, shut the door. What was that? Oh, nothing, nothing. Um, when was the murder discovered? Round about 1.30, by the page boy, Alfred Biggs. 
It seems that Morley's 12.30 patient was kicking up a bit of a fuss about being kept waiting. About ten past one, the boy came up and knocked. There was no answer, but he didn't dare come in here. He'd got into trouble with Morley before for doing the wrong thing. He went down again, and the patient stormed off at 1.15. So, after a bit, the boy went up again and looked in. What exactly was the system for showing up the patients? When Morley was ready, he pressed that buzzer over there, uh-huh. and the boy took the patient to the lift. So when did Morley press the bell last? At five minutes past twelve, and the boy showed up a Mr. Amberiotis. He's staying at the Savoy. And what time did he leave? The boy didn't show him down, but I rang the Savoy, and Amberiotis said he looked at his watch at the front door, and it was twenty-five minutes past twelve. Was it his own pistol? No, it wasn't. According to his sister, who lives with him in the flat upstairs, he hadn't got a pistol. That door over there, that is where his secretary works, is it not? Miss Neville. Seems she is away today. Yes, he told me. That again is a point against suicide. What, you mean she was gone out of the way? Hmm. Well, we come back to the same point. Who on earth would have wanted to murder an inoffensive chap like that? Who could have murdered him? Hmm. Almost anybody. His sister could have come down from the flat above and shot him. His partner, Riley, could have come across from his own surgery and shot him. The boy, Alfred, could have shot him. And Amberiotis could have shot him. Easiest of the lot. But why should some rich Greek want to murder an inoffensive dentist? The motive is the stumbling block. Morley wasn't a danger to anybody. I wonder. What's up your sleeve now? A chance remark he made. He said he never forgot her face. He mentioned a patient he knew he'd seen somewhere before. Sounds a bit far-fetched to me. You didn't notice any of the other patients this morning? There was a young man in the waiting room who looked as if he were longing to murder someone. But he probably just had a toothache. We'll check on everybody who was in the building this morning. Let's start by having a talk with Morley's sister. I haven't really managed to have more than a word or two so far. It is quite incredible. There is no reason, no reason at all, why my brother should have taken his own life. And he was quite as usual this morning before he started work? He was most put out that his secretary had been called away. He mentioned that it was something to do with the illness of a relative. She got a telegram that her aunt had had a stroke and went off to Somerset by an early train. My brother thought... Yes, Miss Morley? The fact of the matter is that Miss Neville has got herself engaged to rather an unsuitable young man, and Henry, my brother was very vexed about it, and it occurred to him that this young man might have persuaded her to take the day off. And what does he do, this young man? What's his name, by the way? Carter. Frank Carter. He was an insurance clerk, I believe. He lost his job some weeks ago and doesn't seem to be able to get another. Gladys actually lent him some of her savings, and Henry was very annoyed about it. Did your brother try to persuade her to break off the engagement? Yes, he did. Then this Frank Carter could quite possibly have a grudge against your brother. If you're suggesting he might have shot Henry, that's nonsense. And the girl didn't take his advice. She is foolishly devoted to Carter. And how did your brother get on with his partner, Mr. Riley? As well as you can hope to get on with an Irishman who's too fond of the bottle. Sorry to stab you, miss, but it's Miss Neville. She's back in a rare taking. Shall she come in, she wants to know? Tell her to wait for a minute. I won't be long. I'd like to have a word with her. Okay. That boy is a sad trial. I don't think it'd have lasted another week. Under the pretext of looking through Morley's papers, Japs steered Miss Neville away from Miss Morley to her little office by the surgery. He couldn't possibly have shot himself. 
I just won't believe it. And that phone call I had, it was just a heartless practical joke. What do you mean by that, Miss Neville? There was never anything wrong with my aunt at all. She couldn't understand it when I suddenly turned up. Of course, I was enormously relieved, but why should anybody do such a nasty thing to me? And you're quite sure it wasn't your friend Mr Carter who sent the telegram? Frank, whatever for? Oh, I see. You're suggesting it was a put-up job between us. Well, neither of us would ever dream of doing a thing like that. You must understand, Miss Neville, that in a matter like this, we have to consider every possibility. And now, if you would be so good as to tell us a little about the patients who came to see Mr Morley this morning. At ten o'clock, there was Mrs Soames, about her new plate. Then there was Lady Grant, an elderly lady who lives in Lowndes Square... Then there was Hercule Poirot. Oh, but of course, there you are. I'm sorry, but I'm so no, upset. No, no, no. Do not apologise, mademoiselle. 11.30, Mr Alistair Blunt, the banker. Then Miss Sainsbury Seal, who rang up specially, terribly fussy she is, and never stops talking. Then at 12 o'clock, Mr Amberiotis. We've never seen him before. He rang up from the Savoy. Then Miss Kirby at 12.15, but she left, I believe. Uh, there was, when I arrived, a tall military gentleman. Oh, well, that would be Colonel Abercrombie, one of Mr Riley's patients. Shall I get you his book? Well, he'd like to have a word with Mr Riley himself as soon as he can see us. Of course. I'll see if he's free. You're very quiet, old cock. Something on your mind? I was just wondering, why Chief Inspector Jap? How do you mean? An officer of your eminence. Is he usually called to a case of apparent suicide? Oh, that's simple enough. Alistair Blunt. As soon as the divisional inspector heard he'd been here this morning, he'd gone to the yard. Mr Blunt is the kind of person we take care of in this country. You mean there are people who would like him out of the way? You bet there are. The Reds, for a start. And our black-shirted friends, too. It's Blunt and his group who are standing solid behind the government. That's why... If there were the least chance that there was any funny stuff intended against Blunt this morning, they wanted a full investigation. Hmm. That is more or less what I guessed. I have a feeling that there was a mistake of some kind. The proper victim was, or should have been, Alistair Blunt himself. You're assuming a lot, you know. I'm afraid Mr Riley's tied up with an extraction. He'll be free in about ten minutes. In that case, we'll have another word with the boy Alfred. I'd like to ask him about that chap you thought looked like a murderer. The American bloke, you mean? American? Oh, yeah. You could tell by his voice. Howard Rakes, his name was. Come early. His appointment with Mr Riley wasn't till 11.30. What's more, he didn't keep it. He didn't keep it? No, I come in for him when Mr Riley's buzzer went at 20 to 12. And he weren't there. Must have funked it. Then he left shortly after me. That's right, sir. You went just after I'd taken up a posh bloke who arrived in a Rolls. Then I let in a Miss Sunbury Seal, and then I took my elevenses in the kitchen, and as I came back, Mr Morley's buzzer went for Miss Seal, so I took her up. And after Miss Seal, there was some foreign gent. And did you see him leave? I can't say I did. He must have let himself out. And where were you from 12 o'clock onwards? I always sit in the lift, waiting until the front doorbell rings or one of the buzzers goes. And how do you pass the time? I read a book. No harm in that, is there? Right. It's not as though I could be doing something else. And what were you reading? Death at 11.45, sir. It's a real corker. Would you hear the front door close from where you were sitting? You mean anyone going out? Hmm. I don't think I should. What I mean is I shouldn't notice. The lift's right at the back of the hall. So, what happened next? Well, there was this last lady, Miss Shirty. I waited for Mr Morley's buzzer to go, but nothing happened. And at one o'clock the lady got quite ratty. It did not occur to you to go up and see if Mr Morley was ready? Not me, sir. Couldn't possibly interrupt him. 
For all I knew, the last person was still up there. I got to wait for the buzzer. Of course, if I'd known Mr Morley had done himself in... Did the buzzer usually go before the patient came down, or the other way round? Depends. Usually the patient comes down the stairs and then the buzzer goes. Sometimes Mr Morley would be a few minutes before he rang for the next patient. If he was in a hurry, he'd ring as soon as they were out of the room. Now tell me, is there anything else you can remember about this morning? Anything that struck you as uh, unusual? Not really. Except Miss Neville's young man come round, and in a rare taking not to find her here. When was this? Sometime after twelve, it must have been. When I told him Miss Neville wasn't here, he said he'd wait to see Mr Morley. And did he wait? Can't kind of think of it, he didn't. He wasn't in the room when I looked in later. He must have given it up as a bad job. I'm sorry to disturb you, but Mr Riley asked me to tell you that he's ready to see you now. His surgery's on the first floor. I'll take you down. I don't think I can really be of much use to you, but I'll tell you one thing. Morley was the last person I would have thought might take his own life. I could have done it, but never him. And why might you have done it, Mr. Riley? Oh, I've got no end of problems. Most of them financial. I'd never managed to suit my expenditure to my income. Oh, but Morley was a careful man. You'll find no debts, no money complications, I can assure you of that. Any love affairs? <laughs> Heavens above. The man had no joy of living at all. Right under his sister's puritanical thumb he was, poor soul. He had no life outside his surgery. Did you notice anything unusual about the behaviour of any of your patients this morning? You mean, might one of them have nipped upstairs and shot Morley? Betty Heath's barely fifteen, and Colonel Abercrombie's not exactly quick on his feet. And there was another patient, I think. Mr Barnes, retired civil servant, very precise and a bit fussy. I don't see him waving a gun about. What about Howard Rakes? The chap who walked out on me. I wasn't pleased about that. I could have done with the fee. Was he a regular patient? Never heard of him before. I know nothing about the fellow. He rang up and particularly asked for an appointment this morning. Where did he ring from? The Holborn Palace Hotel. An American by the sound of him, Alfred says. And what can you tell us about Miss Neville? The beautiful blonde secretary. I might have been tempted. In fact, I was tempted, but not Mr Morley. Georgina would definitely not have approved of that kind of thing. His relations with the fair Gladys were perfectly pure and beyond reproach. I never suggested that they weren't. Oh, you must excuse my carnal mind. I thought it might be an attempt on your part to chercher la femme. Excuse me for mutilating your language, Monsieur Poirot. Mm. My beautiful accent is the consequence of being educated by nuns. And this young man Gladys Neville was engaged to, Frank Carter? Morley didn't think much of him. I mean, even though he'd never have laid a finger on her, he could get quite possessive about Gladys. He tried to get her to turn Carter down. And this might have annoyed Mr Carter? I'm sure it did. But look here, is this really a suicide or are you investigating a murder? If it were a murder, would you have anything to suggest? Nothing. I suppose I'd like it to be Georgina. She's a grim, disapproving killjoy with temperance on the brain, always suggesting that my hand shakes too much to handle the drill and complaining that I breathe alcohol fumes over the patients. But I can't really imagine anyone killing Morley, or him killing himself, for that matter. I was fond of him, and I shall miss him. Thank you, Mr Riley. Is there a phone I can use anyway? Of course, the office is next door. Feel free to ring whoever you like. Well, that's an odd turn up for the book. 
The Savoys say that Mr. Amberiotis isn't feeling very well and would rather not see anyone this afternoon. But he's going to see me, and he's not going to give me the slip. I've got two men posted outside the hotel. You think that Amberiotis shot Murray? Can't be sure, but he was the last person to see him alive. Amberiotis says that Morley was perfectly well when he left him at 12.25. There was still five minutes to go before the next appointment. Did someone come into the surgery during those five minutes? Carter, say? Or Riley? What happened? Because by five and twenty to one at the latest, Morley was dead. So, what do you propose to do now? I'm going to have a word with every patient he saw this morning. There's just a possibility that he may have said something to one of them that could put us on the right track. Mr. Alistair Blunt said he could give me five minutes at 4.15, so we'll start with him. He's got a place on the Chelsea Embankment. The Gothic House, as they call it. We'll take a cab. Tell me a little about this Alistair Blunt. Beyond what I've read in the papers, I know nothing. He seems always to have deliberately kept out of the limelight. Oh, yes. He keeps himself to himself. Hang on. I made a few notes about him. The key to his career is that he married money, a woman called Rebecca Sanseverato, 20 years older than him. Her mother was the Rotherstein heiress, and her father the head of the Arnholt Bank of America. Her brothers were killed in an air crash, and she got the lot. And uh, was Alistair Blunt her first husband? No, he wasn't. She married a Prince Felipe de San Severato, a bit of a rogue by all accounts. After three years, she divorced him. He was a child, but he died. So how did Blunt come into her life? He was a junior partner in the London branch of one of our banking concerns. Don't ask me what happened, but within six months of their meeting one another, they were married. And it seems to have worked out rather well. Devoted to one another, apparently. She died ten years ago. And did he marry again? No, he didn't. She'd left him everything, of course, but he didn't go in for the high life. Led a blameless existence, still does. Round a golf every now and then. Country houses in Norfolk and in Kent. Ah, here we are. Spot on time, too. Chief Inspector Jeff? At your service, sir. And this is Monsieur Hercule Poirot, who's taking an interest in the case. Enchanté. I know your name, of course, Monsieur Poirot. And surely, quite recently... This morning, monsieur, in the waiting room of Le Pauvre Monsieur Morley. Of course, I knew I'd seen you somewhere. Sir, what can I do for you, Chief Inspector? I am extremely sorry to hear about poor Morley. You were surprised, Mr. Blunt? Very surprised. I should have thought him a most unlikely person to commit suicide. Did he seem in good spirits this morning? I think so. To tell you the truth, I'm an awful coward about going to the dentist, and I didn't really notice anything very much... Not till it was over. But I must say, Morley seemed perfectly natural then. Cheerful and busy. You've been to him often? This must have been my third or fourth visit. Who recommended Mr. Morley to you originally? I can't for the life of me remember. If it should come to you, perhaps you will uh, let us know? I will, certainly. But does it matter? I have an idea that it might matter very much. Hi. You there. You're that detective fellow, aren't you? Hercule Poirot? I cannot deny it, mademoiselle. And you are? Chief Inspector Jack. Why are you here? Has something happened to Uncle Alistair? Why should you think that, Miss... Oliver, Jane Oliver. There's nothing wrong with Mr. Blunt, I'm glad to say. Did he call you in about something, Monsieur Poirot? 
We called on your uncle, Miss Oliveira, to see if he could throw any light on a case of suicide that happened this morning. Who's suicide? Mr. Blunt's dentist and Mr. Morley of Queen Charlotte Street. That's absurd. Absurd. An extraordinary thing to say. Interesting. Right. We've just got time to call in on Miss Sainsbury Seal on our way to the Savoy. She's staying at the Glengowrie Court Hotel. There's a corner just here in the recess. We shan't be disturbed. <sighs> Would you care for a cup of tea? No, thank you, madam. This is Monsieur Hercule Poirot. Really? Madame. Now, please, feel free to ask me anything you like. Such a distressing business. Poor man, I suppose he had something on his mind. Did he seem to you worried at all? Oh, I can't really say that he did. But I doubt whether I would have noticed not under the circumstances. I have a perfect horror of going to the dentist. Mm. Can you tell us who else was in the waiting room while you were there? Uh, there was just one young man when I went in. I think he must have been in pain because he was muttering to himself and looking quite wild. And then suddenly he jumped up and went out. Did you notice whether he left the house when he went out of the room? I don't know at all. But it can't have been Mr. Morley he was going to see because the boy came and took me up there only a few minutes later. So that young chap with a toothache was the only other person you noticed? Well, there was a very peculiar-looking foreigner who came out of the house just as I arrived. <coughs> that was I, madame. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> so it was. <laughs> I'm getting so short-sighted. <laughs> well, I think that will be all for the moment, Miss Sainsbury Seal. Though it may be necessary for you to give evidence at the inquest. The inquest? Is this likely to be your address for the near future? Well, yes, I suppose so. I came back from India a few months ago. I was working as an elocution teacher in Calcutta. You see, as a girl, I was on the stage, only small parts. So okay. we'd be able to get hold of you here? Oh, yes. If by any chance my name should be given in the papers, you will make sure they get it right. Maybell Sainsbury Seal... And if they care to mention that I appeared in As You Like It at the Oxford Repertory Theatre, and that was, of course, my most famous... A bit of limelight for the poor soul, I suppose. <laughs> Do you really want her at the inquest? Probably not. It depends. But I'm more than ever convinced that this isn't a case of suicide. And the motive? Beats me for the moment. But let's see what Amberiotis has to say for himself. And I'm not going to have any nonsense about him not feeling up to it. Mr. Amberiotis, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you can't see him. Oh, yes, I can, my lad. Chief Inspector Jack, Scotland Yard. I'm afraid you don't understand, sir. Mr. Amberiotis died half an hour ago. In part one of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Riley, Stephen Tomkinson, Morley, Matthew Devereux, Georgina Morley, Caroline Wildey, Miss Sainsbury Seal, Joanna McCallum, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, Gladys Neville, Sophie Arnold, Alfred, Tom George. The music was composed by Tom Smale. One Two Buckle My Shoe is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams.
And now on BBC Radio 4, we return to our Agatha Christie serial. My dentist, Mr Morley, was found shot dead in his surgery not long after I myself had visited him. A pointless and inexplicable crime. And then, later the same day, the last person he had attended before his death, a Mr Amberiotis, died in his room at the Savoy Hotel. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. Hercule Poirot? It's a washout, the whole thing. What do you mean, my friend? Morley committed suicide, and we've got the motive. Which is? I've just had the doctor's report on Amberi Otis. He died from an overdose of adrenaline and novocaine. It acted on his heart and he collapsed. So, when he said he was too ill to see you... He was practically at death's door. Hmm. And adrenaline and novocaine are what dentists inject as a local anaesthetic. It would take some time to have its full effect. After Amberi Otis left, Morley obviously realised he'd given him an overdose, couldn't face the consequences, and shot himself. With a pistol his sister says he did not possess. Relatives don't know everything. You'd be surprised at things they don't know. That is true. Would you like me to drop round? I should be delighted, my dear Jap. Or you better have a large scotch ready for me. <laughs> I shall put it into your hand the moment you arrive. Cheers. So, there you are. A perfectly lucid explanation for the whole thing. I'm afraid it does not satisfy me, my friend. Patients have been known to react unfavorably to a local anesthetic, but the person who administers the drug does not usually carry his concern so far as to kill himself. After all, it is hardly a criminal matter. Mm, but it wouldn't do Morley's reputation much good, would it? In fact, it would almost certainly ruin him. Nobody's going to go to a dentist who's likely to squirt lethal doses of poison into you just because he happens to be a bit absent-minded. Even so... Ah, uh, I know you, old boy. Once you've got your teeth into a case of murder, you don't want to let go. It's my fault, I admit, for setting you on the track. What kind of man was he, this Amberiotis? Oh, he wasn't a nice man by any means. Started off as a little hotel keeper in Greece, and then he mixed himself up in politics. Some kind of espionage work in Germany and France. Got himself involved in a very murky business out in India last year. But no one was able to prove anything against him. I suspect that his real game was blackmail. He might even have been blackmailing Morley, for all I know. But I'm sure it was the way I said it was. Sorry to cheat you out of a juicy little murder. But I was not at all happy. And there were many aspects of the case that puzzled me. In the words of the nursery rhyme, I began picking up sticks. What was the role of Miss Neville's boyfriend, Frank Carter? Why had that wild-looking young American, Howard Rakes, gone off before his appointment with Mr. Riley? And there was another name in Riley's appointment book, a retired civil servant called Barnes, who lived near Ealing Broadway. Monsieur Hercule Farrow. 
I am honored. Oh, monsieur. Please, take a seat. Thank you. I can guess what brings you here. That very curious business at 58 Queen Charlotte Street. You are quite right, Mr. Barnes. But how did I've you... I've been retired from the Home Office for some time now, but I know very well that in any hush-hush business, it's far better not to use the police. No need to draw attention to it all. But why should you suppose this is a hush-hush business, isn't it? Well, if it isn't, it ought to be. In secret service work, it's not the little fry you want, it's the big boys at the top. But to get them, you've got to be careful not to alarm the little fry. It seems to me, Mr. Barnes, that you know rather more about this than I do. Oh, I know nothing about it at all. I'm simply putting two and two together. One of those two being... Ambriotis. I was sitting opposite him in the waiting room for a minute or two. He didn't know me. I was always an insignificant chap. But I knew him, and I could guess what he was up to. And what was that, Mr. Barnes? What must be so heartbreaking to your average foreign agent is that this country is so hard to damage. We really are quite remarkably solvent, which is more than can be said for most of the other countries in Europe. And you can't even begin to play merry hell with our financial institutions so long as you've got men like Alastair Blunt at the helm. That's why they've made up their minds that Blunt must go. You believe that he was the intended victim? It's been tried before. The method, I mean. Chancellor of the Exchequer died on the operating table. A miscalculation on the part of the anaesthetist, they said. The head of Sterling Industries was run down by a car and killed. Anxious mother in a hurry to get to a sick child, according to the inquest. But that anaesthetist is now set up on his own with a first-class research laboratory. And the anxious mother has a big house in the country, and her daughter has a pony to ride. And Mr. Molly Wouldn't join in their dirty little racket, so he had to go. And who, my friend, are they? In this case, I would think it was probably Morley's partner, Mr. Riley. And where does Amberiotis come into this? Well, he was playing a double game, I fancy. It would have been easy enough for Riley to have given him an overdose. So, if your ideas are correct, what will happen next? They'll have to have another go at Blunt. But they'll be on their guard this time. Uh, tell the police... Uh, to look out for the respectable, ordinary people, the old servants, the chemist's assistant who makes up the medicine, the wine merchant who sells him his port. Getting blunt out of the way is worth millions, and it's wonderful what people will do for a few thousand a year, tax-free. Hello, Poirot. What brings you here so early in the morning? I was wondering whether you intended to call Miss Sainsbury Seal as a witness at the inquest. Oh, I don't think so. She hasn't really got anything to contribute. Mm, perhaps it's just as well. Why do you say that? Because I thought I would call in to see her at the Glengarry Court yesterday evening. Now, you might be interested to know that she walked out of the hotel just before dinner on the day we paid her a visit, and she did not come back. You mean she's hooked it? Well, that is a possible explanation... Though it is strange that she should choose to disappear so soon after seeing us. Well, it is a bit odd, I admit, but there's nothing at all fishy about her. I cable Calcutta, and she's perfectly genuine and respectable. Everything confirms the account of herself she gave to us. She's well known to all the missions. As she said, she was an actress of sorts and gave elocution lessons. In fact, what I call a terrible woman. But certainly not the type to get mixed up in murder. So why did she walk out of her hotel? Perhaps she just got fed up with the place. But her luggage is still there. She took nothing with her. Hmm. Perhaps we ought to give her the once-over. You never know. Might tell us something.
A curiously random collection of shoes, serviceable Oxfords, moccasins, meretricious glass-safe fancy slippers, mm. plain black evening shoes, a size smaller than the others. But there's no sign of the patent leather ones with the buckles that she was wearing on the morning Molly was killed. She was obviously wearing them when she slipped out. Hmm. Underclothing. Oh, she obviously believed in wearing wool next to the skin. Stockings, ten inch. Mm, cheap, shiny silk. Price probably two and eleven. You're not valuing for probate, old boy. Two letters here from India. Receipts from charitable institutions. No bills. Very estimable character, Miss Sainsbury Seal. But very little taste in dress. <laughs> she probably thought dress too worldly. There's a letter here from some people in Hampstead. They might know something about her. They had been neighbours of hers in India, but had not seen her for over a month, and had no idea what might have become of her. She had, it seemed, simply disappeared into space. But there was a stick I had not picked up. Howard Rakes, the dangerous-looking young man who had prowled so restlessly round Mr. Morley's waiting room. I found him having breakfast at the Hoban Palace Hotel. What the hell do you want? You uh, permit that I take a seat? You seem to have taken it. You do not remember me, Mr. Rakes? Never set eyes on you in my life. Oh, yes. We were together for at least five minutes in Mr. Molly's waiting room. So what are you after? Here is my card. Yes, I've heard of you. Most people have. So let's get to the point. What are you doing here? I wanted to see you, to assuage my curiosity. And I suppose you were just assuaging your curiosity at the dentist the other day. You seem to overlook the most ordinary reason for being in a dentist's waiting room, which is to have one's teeth attended to. <laughs> You'll excuse me if I say I don't believe you. <laughs> As you wish. And what were you doing there? Waiting to have my teeth attended to. You had perhaps the toothache? A very astute piece of deduction. But all the same, you went away without having your teeth attended to. Look, what the hell's the point of all this? You were there to keep an eye on Alistair Blunt. Well, nothing happened to him. So what are you trying to prove? Where did you go when you went so abruptly out of the waiting room? Into the street, of course. But nobody saw you leave the house. Well, does that matter? It might. Somebody died in that house not long afterwards. Uh, that dentist fellow. Yes, Mr. Rakes. That dentist fellow. Can you prove that you left the house when you said you did? I suppose Blunt put you up to this. You will pardon me, but it seems an obsession with you, this harping on Mr. Blunt. I am not employed by him. I have never been employed by him. I am concerned only with the death of an honest man who did good work in his chosen profession. I don't believe you. Now, you may be a clever little man, but you can't save Blunt. He's got to go and everything he stands for. The old corrupt system of finance, the evil network of bankers all over the world. The slate has to be wiped clean so that we can begin again. I see, Mr. Hakes, that you are an idealist. What if I am? Too much of an idealist to care about the 
death of a dentist. What does the death of a miserable little dentist matter? But it mattered to me, and it mattered to Murray's secretary, Gladys Neville. I'm so sorry to worry you like this. Really, I don't know how I had the courage to come. A cup of tea made in miraculously short time by the excellent Georges soon restored her self-confidence. You see, Monsieur Poirot, it all came as such a terrible shock. The things that were said at the inquest, I mean. It upset me a great deal. I'm sure it must have done. I felt that somebody had to go with Miss Morley, you see. That was very kind of you. But it's all wrong, Monsieur Poirot. What is wrong, mademoiselle? It couldn't have happened the way they said it did. Giving a patient an overdose by injecting the gum. Why do you think that? Practitioners get so into the habit of giving the regulation amount that they do it automatically. It is standardized, you see. They couldn't just give a massive overdose by accident. Mm, that is what I thought myself. But why did you not ask to be allowed to make this observation in the coroner's court? Because I was afraid of making things worse. It might suggest that Mr. Morley had done it deliberately. That's why I've come to you, Monsieur Poirot, because with you it wouldn't be official in any way. I would like to know a little more about that telegram you received, saying that your aunt was ill. I don't know what to think. You see, it must have been sent by someone who knew all about me and my aunt, where she was living and everything. Frank, you know my fiancé, got quite angry about it. He accused me of wanting to go off for the day with somebody else. He knew nothing about it when he came to the surgery? No. And what made it worse, he wanted to tell me about his new job. Ten pounds a week. And I think he wanted Mr. Morley to know as well, because he'd been very hurt at the way Mr. Morley didn't approve of him. He thought he was trying to influence me against him. Which was true, was it not? Well, yes, it was. Frank isn't exactly what you'd call steady, but it will be different now. I should like to meet this young man of yours. I should love you to meet him, Monsieur Poirot, but just at present, some days is only day free. He's away in the country all week, you see. And what is this new job of his? Well, I don't know exactly. I think he said something about some government department. I have to send letters to Frank's London address and they get forwarded. That is a little odd, is it not? Well, I thought so, but Frank says it is often done nowadays. Tomorrow is Sunday, n'est-ce pas? Perhaps you could both give me the pleasure of lunching with me at the Leicester Square Corner House. I should like to discuss this sad business with you both. Well, I had no idea we were to have the honour of lunching with you, Mr Poirot. It was only arranged yesterday. Miss Never is very upset by the circumstances of Mr. Morley's death, and I wanted that oh, you... Oh, Morley! I'm sick of everyone going on about Morley. But he left me a hundred pounds. I got a letter about it only last well, night. Was that all? After you slaving away there while he pocketed all the fat fees? But he paid me very well. And he did his best to get you to give me the push. I just wish I'd had the chance to tell him what I thought of him. And you actually went round on the morning of his death to do just that, did you not? No. I wanted to see Gladys. But they told you she was away. Yes, that made me suspicious, so I said I'd wait and see Morley. I wanted to tell him that I'd landed a good job, and it was time Gladys handed in her notice. But you did not actually see him? No. I got tired of waiting about in that dingy mausoleum. At what time did you leave? I can't remember. What time did you arrive, then? I don't know. Soon after twelve, I imagine. And you stayed for how long, uh, Half an hour or longer? I don't know. 
I'm not the sort who's always watching the clock. Well, was there anyone else in the waiting room while you were there? Mm, well, there was a fat, oily-looking foreign bloke. But he went up to Morley's surgery. I must have left not long after that. The place was beginning to get on my nerves. Now, Miss Neville tells me that you have been very fortunate in finding a new job. The pay's good. Ten pounds a week. Shows I can pull it off when I set my mind to it. And is it interesting work? Yes. Uh, talking of jobs, I've always wondered how you private detectives earn your living. I suppose it's more the divorce stuff than Sherlock Holmes nowadays. I do not concern myself with divorce. Monsieur Poirot doesn't have to worry about that sort of thing. Mr. Morley always used to say you're right at the top of the tree. The sort of person royalty calls in, or the home office. Isn't that right, Monsieur Poirot? Tell me, my friend, did you ever manage to trace that telegram that was sent to Gladys Neville? You don't give up, do you, Alcock? As a matter of fact, we did. The aunt lives at Earlsford in Somerset, and the telegram was handed in at Earlsford, London SW6. Quite clever, really. So that if the recipient happened to glance at where the telegram was handed in, it would look genuine. Mm. Uh-huh. There are signs of brains in this business. So you're still convinced it's a case of murder? Well, let us say I am not satisfied. Well, you may not be, Poirot, but the assistant commissioner is. And is he satisfied with the disappearing lady? The case of the vanishing seal? No, we're still working on that. Are you suggesting she's been murdered too? It is certainly a possibility. Don't you worry. We'll find her all right. Woolen underwear and all. We've published a description of her in the press, and we're roping in the BBC. That ought to do the trick. Hercule Poirot. This is Jane Oliveira, Mr. Alistair Blunt's niece. Yes, Miss Oliveira. Could you come to the Gothic house, please? There's something we feel you ought to know. Certainly. At what time? At 6.30, please. I will be there. I hope I'm not interrupting your work. Not at all. I was expecting you to call me. It's very good of you to come, Monsieur Poirot. You've met Miss Oliveira, I understand. It's about that missing woman we've been reading about in the paper. Miss Sainsbury Seal? Yes. Shall I tell him or will you, Uncle Alistair? My dear, it's your story. It mayn't be important in the least, but I thought you ought to know. Please tell me, mademoiselle. It happened when Uncle Alistair went to the dentist's. Not this last time, but about six weeks ago. I went with him in the rolls so that he could take me on to some friends in Regent's Park. We stopped outside the dentist's, and a woman appeared at the door. Can you describe her, mademoiselle? She was middle-aged, with funny hair, and rather untidy, arty clothes. She made a beeline for Uncle Alistair and said, Oh, Mr. Blunt, you don't remember me, I'm sure... Well, of course, I could see from Uncle's face that he didn't remember her in the slightest. I never do. People are always saying it. He put on his special face, kind of polite and make-believe. It wouldn't deceive a baby. He said in a totally unconvincing voice, Oh, uh, of course. And this dreadful woman said, I was a great friend of your wife's, you know. They usually say that. And it always ends the same way, a subscription to some good cause or other. I got off this time with five pounds to the Zanara Missions, or something of that sort. Had she really known your wife? Well, her interest in the Zanara Missions made me think she must have been in India. We were there about ten years ago. 
But, of course, she couldn't have been a great friend or I'd have known about it. Probably met my wife at a reception. I don't believe she'd ever met Aunt Rebecca at all. I think it was just an excuse to get a subscription out of you. Did she mention her name? Oh, yes. She said she was Miss Sainsbury Seal. And did she try to follow up this meeting in any way? No. I'd actually forgotten all about her until Jane spotted her name in the paper. Well, I thought Monsieur Poirot ought to be told. I am most obliged, mademoiselle. And now, I will take up no more of your time, Mr. Blunt. I know you are a busy man. Goodbye, Monsieur Poirot. Goodbye. I'll come down with you, Monsieur Poirot. Oh. Just a minute. Come in here, will you? There is something else, mademoiselle. What did you mean on the telephone when you said you'd been expecting me to call? Simply that, mademoiselle. You mean you knew I'd ring you up about that scary woman? Oh, that was only a pretext. All right, Mr. Noel. Why the hell should I ring you up? Why should you give this information about Miss Sainsbury Seal to me instead of Scotland Yard, huh? What you really want to find out is why I paid a visit to the Hoban Park Hotel. I haven't the least idea what you're going on about. I am talking about Mr. Howard Rakes. Who's he? Oh, oh Miss Oliveira, do not play the silly games with me. That first time Chief Inspector Jap and I came here, you thought that something had happened to your uncle. Well, he's the kind of man that some things happen to. Chief Inspector Shap told you that a certain dentist, Mr. Morley, had been shot, and you replied strangely. You said, that's absurd. Did I? Well, that was rather absurd of me, wasn't it? You had expected, or perhaps you had feared, that something might happen at Mr. Morley's, that your uncle was in danger. But if so, you knew something that we did not know. I reflected on the people who had been in the waiting room that day, and I seized at once on the one person who might have a connection with you, the young American Howard Rakes, and so I went to see him. He is a dangerous and attractive young man. He is, isn't he? Oh, there's no point in trying to string you along, Monsieur Poirot. I'm just crazy about him. We met in college. My mother dragged me over to England just to get me away from him. Well, it was partly that. She also hoped that Uncle Alistair might get fond of me and leave me all his money when he dies. Perhaps you could tell me a little about your family, mademoiselle. It's really very simple. Mother is Uncle Alistair's niece by marriage. Her mother was Rebecca Arnholt's sister, which makes him my great-uncle-in-law, although, of course, he was years younger than Aunt Rebecca. And so he acquired an entire American family. He hasn't got any relatives of his own, so Mother doesn't see why we shouldn't be his residuary legatees. But I do not imagine that Mr. Howard Rakes greatly approves of inherited wealth. He abominates everything Uncle Alistair stands for, and I can understand that, of course. I'm fond of Uncle, but he's so stodgy, so British. Why did Howard Rakes make that appointment at Queen Charlotte Street? Because I wanted him to meet Uncle Alistair. I hoped they might just happen to run into one another. I felt that if Howard could only see him, see what a kindly, unassuming person he was, he might feel differently. But having made the arrangement, you were afraid? Yes. Because sometimes Howard gets carried away. So carried away that he might have killed the wrong person? 
Was the shot that killed Morley really intended for your uncle, mademoiselle? Is that why you said it was absurd? Of course not. This is ridiculous. Howard couldn't possibly do a thing like that. Would he not? Then why are you trembling? Is it because I may possibly be right? Damn it all, Poirot. That Sainsbury Seal woman's got to be somewhere. If she drowned herself, for instance, the body would have come ashore by now. Not if a weight was attached to her body and it was thrown into the Thames. From a cellar in Limehouse, I suppose. You're talking like a thriller by a lady novelist. I know, I know. I blush when I say these things. And she was done to death, I suppose, by an international gang of crooks. Well, I have been told lately that such things happen. Who told you? Uh, Mr. Reginald Barnes of Castle Garden Road in Ealing. Well, he might know. He dealt with the alien department when he was in the home office. But have you received no new information about her? Oh, I wouldn't say that. We discovered that she came over here from India on the same boat as Amberiotis. Huh. And one of the waiters at the Savoy thought he saw them lunching together about a week before Amberiotis died. You mean there may have been some connection between them? No, I can't say that it's very likely. A missionary lady being mixed up in funny business. Did you know that Miss Sainsbury Seal claimed to be a close friend of the late Mrs. Alistair Blunt? Who said so? She said so. You mean that Amberiotis might have been using her to get money out of Blunt? Well, it does not seem very likely. All that she did was to approach him for a subscription to one of her missions. She's hardly the sort to get tangled up in international espionage. And nobody has seen her since the day she walked out of Glengarry Court. I wouldn't say that. Practically everybody seems to have seen her. She's been sighted on the Yorkshire Moors, and in a hotel in Liverpool, and on the beach at Ramsgate. My men have spent a lot of time following up all the reports and getting fleas in their ears from a number of perfectly respectable middle-aged ladies. And yet it cannot be a coincidence that she disappeared on the day of Molly's death. She didn't shoot him, if that's what you mean. Amberry Otis saw him alive after she left. And I'm not for a second suggesting that she shot Molly, but... All the same... If you're right about Morley, and he really was murdered, then it's far more likely that he told her something which, although she didn't suspect it, gave a clue to his killer. If that's the case, she might have been deliberately got out of the way. But that suggests some big organisation is involved. Not the kind of thing you expect with the death of an ordinary dentist in Queen Charlotte Street. A big organisation. A concern to whom life is of no consequence who do not hesitate to kill to protect themselves. More than ever, I am convinced that this was no common crime. We are up against people who are playing for very high stakes, the fate of this country, perhaps. And who can tell when or where they will show their hand? In part two of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Mr. Barnes, Patrick Godfrey, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, Howard Rakes, Robert Portal, Gladys Neville, Sophie Arnold, Frank Carter, Dominic Colchester. The music was composed by Tom Smale, one, two, Buckle My Shoe is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell 
and directed by Enid Williams. And one, two, buckle my shoe will continue at the same time next week. So now we continue our Agatha Christie serial. It was a month since my dentist, Mr. Morley, had been found shot dead in his surgery. Chief Inspector Shap was convinced it was suicide, but I was not satisfied. For four weeks I had gone about picking up sticks, and now, following the nursery rhyme, I had to lay them straight. But there remained the enigma of Miss Sainsbury's seal, who had visited Morley's surgery on that fatal morning, and who had vanished without trace that same evening. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. Hercule Poirot? We've found her. You better come round. King Leopold Mansion's Battersea, number 45 on the second floor. The porter will bring you up in the lift. I'll be waiting for you. You haven't wasted much time. No, no, no. Come on in. Hmm. Not particularly pleasant, I'm afraid. But I expect you want to see for yourself. She is dead. What you might describe as very dead. Yes. I fear my nose has already registered that fact. Hmm. Not nice. Not nice at all. But what can you expect? She'd been dead for nearly a month. She's over there in the box room, in an old fur chest. A shabby shoe with a gleaming buckle. And, oh, mon Dieu. Pretty horrible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Why bash her face in like that? There's a spot of brandy in the next room. You better have a drop. Oh, oh it was not pretty, that... Now, tell me all about it, my friend. The flat belongs to a Mrs. Albert Chapman. She is, I gather, a well-upholstered, smart blonde of 40-odd. Keeps herself to herself, no children. Mr. Chapman, it seems, is a commercial traveller. Sainsbury Seal came here the evening we interviewed her, probably. When she walked out from the Glengowrie Court? She'd been here before, the porter says. He took her up in the lift of the flat. The last he saw of her, she was standing on the mat pressing the bell. But what about Mrs. Chapman? That's a funny thing. She's been gone for five weeks or more. She left a note for the daily woman who worked for her that she'd been called away. Ah, it is all very curious. And why was the face of Miss Sainsbury still so brutally disfigured? Sheer vindictiveness, perhaps. Or it might have been to conceal her identity. But it did not conceal her identity. No. For a start, we had a good description of what she was wearing when she disappeared. And then I found a handbag stuffed into the chest. And there was an old letter in it addressed to her at a hotel in Russell Square. But it does not make sense. Hmm. Might have been a slip. Whoever did it cleared up in a hurry. There were traces of blood on the linoleum which had been missed when the floor was washed down. I should like to see Mrs. Chapman's bedroom. Come along, then. You won't find anything very illuminating. Hmm. 
Jap was right. There was a lavish array of cosmetics, two bottles of blonde hair dye, and a row of shoes. Size five. Uh, There's something worrying you, Poirot. What is it? There is, for me, an insoluble problem. I must have another look at the body. You're a glutton for punishment, aren't you? But don't let me interfere with your fun. A shabby old shoe with the buckle evidently sewn on by hand. And the shoe fits tightly. What are you trying to do? Make it all more difficult than it already is? Exactly that. One patent leather shoe complete with buckle. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But all the same, I do not understand. Then let's get out of this place. There's a Mrs. Merton lives at number 82. According to the porter, she knew Mrs. Chapman quite well. At first she had little to tell us. They had been to the cinema together and had played bridge. But then, when Jacques told her that a woman's body had been found in the flat, she confessed, almost in a whisper, that Mrs. Chapman had once told her that her husband worked for the Secret Service. Shades of Phillips Oppenheim. That's all I needed. But when we reached Jap's office, a curious piece of information awaited us. It was the name of Mrs. Chapman's dentist. Morley. You'd think there weren't any other dentists in London. Ah, at least there will now be no difficulty in positively identifying the corpse. You surely don't imagine. Well, I just want to be sure. I'll get my sergeant onto Morley's dental record straight away. And can you tell me where Morley's sister is living now? Not in Queen Charlotte Street, that's for sure. She said she couldn't bear to live there any more. She's taken a small country cottage near Hartford. I've got a note of the address somewhere. So you think Miss Sainsbury's seal was murdered too? Your brother never mentioned her particularly to you? Not that I remember. He would tell me if he had had a particularly trying patient or if one of them had said something amusing. But he didn't usually talk about his work much. Do you recall anything about a Mrs. Chapman? No, nothing. Miss Neville would really be the person to help you over all this. Do you have any idea where she's living now? She has taken a post with a dentist in Ramsgate. I can give you the address. She's not yet married to that young man, Frank Carter? No, and I hope she never will be. I don't like Frank Carter. There is something wrong about him. He seems to be totally devoid of any moral sense. Do you think it is possible that he could have shot your brother? He's certainly capable of it. He has a quite uncontrollable temper. But I don't see that he had any real motive. It wasn't as if Henry had succeeded in persuading Gladys to give him up. Could he have been bribed, do you think? To kill my brother? What a perfectly extraordinary idea. And that was that. Her housemaid, Agnes, who had been with her at Queen Charlotte Street, came up to me as I was leaving and asked whether the police were certain that her employer had shot himself. But she would not tell me why she was so anxious to know. I returned home to find an unexpected visitor. I will be frank with you, Monsieur Poirot. It is sheer curiosity that has brought me here. I see by the papers that Miss Sainsbury's seal has been found. The cause of death is stated to have been an overdose of medinal. That is quite correct, Mr. Barnes. Now tell me, have you ever heard of Albert Chapman? 
You mean the husband of the person in whose flat Miss Sainsbury Seal came to die? Well, he was rather an elusive character, it would seem. But hardly non-existent. Oh, yes, he exists. Or did exist. I had heard he was dead. Who was he, Mr. Barnes? I don't suppose they'll say at the inquest. Not if they can help it. They'll trot out the story of a traveller for an armaments firm. He was in the Secret Service then? Well, of course he was. But he had no business to tell his wife. In fact, he ought not to have continued in the service after his marriage. Not when you're one of the really hush-hush people. And Albert Chapman was hush-hush? Uh, oh, yes. QX-912. That's what he was known as. I don't mean that he was specially important, but he was useful because he was an insignificant sort of chap. He was employed quite a lot as a messenger up and down Europe. You know the sort of thing. One dignified letter sent via our ambassador in Ruritania, and another, not so tactful one, containing the real dirt, carried by QX-912, Mr. Albert Chapman. And you say you heard he was dead? I did, but you can't believe all you hear. I never do. What do you think happened to his wife? I can't imagine. Can you? I did have an idea, but... Oh, it is very confusing. Anything worrying you in particular? Yes, Mr. Barnes. The evidence of my own eyes. How the devil did you know? My good sharp. I have not the least idea of what you are talking about. What gave you the idea that the body in the chest wasn't Miss Sainsbury's seal? It was the face that worried me. Why was it disfigured beyond recognition? I'm beginning to wonder if that's why Morley was done away with, so that he couldn't give evidence. Fortunately, all his notes were still intact, and there's no question that the dead woman was Sylvia Chapman. Fundamentally, of course, the two women were not unalike. They were both in their early fifties and roughly of the same height and build. Both of them had graying hair which they touched up to make it appear golden. One thing you've got to admit, Maybell Sainsbury Seal had us good and proper. I'd have sworn she was the genuine article. But she was the genuine article. We know all about her past life. We didn't know she was capable of murder. And that's what it looks like. Sylvia didn't murder Maybell. Maybell murdered Sylvia. You're right. It is not easy to reconcile her with murder, but... I'm going to get to the bottom of this case, Poirot. That woman isn't going to put it over on me. But it was a very different chap who telephoned me the following day. Do you want to hear the news? It's Narpoo, my lad, Narpoo. Pardon? The line is not very clear. It's all off. O-F-F. -F. We're to sit down and twiddle our thumbs. What is off? The whole blinking thing, the whole bag of tricks. No, I'm afraid I still do not understand. Listen carefully, because I can't mention names. You know we've been combing the country for a performing fish? Well, strictly speaking, a seal is not a fish, but, uh, yes, I comprehend. Well, it's been called off. Hushed up. Do you get me? Yes, 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 but why? Orders from the ruddy foreign office. But why should they want to hush up something about uh, your performing fish? They're not. They don't give tums about her. It's the publicity. If she's brought to trial, too much might come out about who the corpse really is. Mrs. A.C.? That's the hush-hush side. I can only suppose the corpse's husband is somewhere abroad in a ticklish spot, and they don't want us to queer his pitch. Letting our performing fish off the hook really makes me see red. She will not get away with it, my friend. Our hands are tied, I tell you. Yours may be, 
Mine are not. <laughs> Good old Poirot. That's what I like to hear. So you're going to go through with it? May we? To the death. Well, don't let it be your death, old boy. If this business goes on as it's been going on so far, someone will probably send you a poisoned tarantula through the post. As I put the phone down, I wondered why I had used such a melodramatic phrase as to the death. It was absurd. But then, that evening, a letter came. A letter from Alistair Blunt. My dear Monsieur Poirot, I should be greatly obliged if you would call on me sometime tomorrow. I may have a commission for you. I suggest 12.30 at the Gothic House. I apologise for giving you such short notice. Poirot? Monsieur Poirot, you have already received or shortly will receive a letter. Who is speaking, please? It is not necessary that you should know. Very well. I have received, madame, eight letters and three bills by the evening post. Then you must know which letter I mean. If you are wise, you will refuse the commission you have been offered. That, madame, is a matter I shall decide for myself. I am warning you. Your interference will no longer be tolerated. Keep out of this business. That is a threat, madame. You cannot alter the course of events, so keep out of what does not concern you. You understand? Oh, yes, I understand, but I consider that Mr. Morley's death is my concern. Morley's death was an accident. He interfered with our plans. He was a human being, madame, and he died before his time. He was of no importance. There you are wrong. It was his own fault. He refused to be sensible. I, too, refused to be sensible. Then you are a fool. There was no point in trying to trace the number. I was fairly certain that the call had come from a public telephone box. But where had I heard that voice before? It was disguised, certainly, but... Could it not have been the voice of Miss Sainsbury's seal? In the newspaper the following morning, I read that the Prime Minister had been shot at as he was leaving Downing Street with a friend... Fortunately, the bullet had gone wide. I thought you'd be round soon enough. Did the papers mention who the friend was? No. Who was it? Alistair Blunt. And we've every reason to believe that the bullet was really meant for him. Unless the man was an even worse shot than we thought he was. And who was this man? Some crazy foreign student. But he was put up to it, or so he says. How was he caught? Well, that's a strange story in itself. There's usually a small group of people hanging about outside number 10. When the shot was fired, a young American chap grabbed hold of a little man with a beard, held on to him like grim death, and yelled to the police that he got the gunman. Meanwhile, the foreign bloke was quietly hooking it. But one of our people nabbed him, all right. Who was the American? A fellow by the name of... Rakes. Huh? What's the matter? Howard Rakes. Staying at the Hoban Palace Hotel. Of course, I thought I knew the name. He was the bloke who ran off from his appointment the morning Morley shot himself. Funny how that business keeps cropping up. Good morning, Mr. Poirot. My name is Selby. I'm Mr. Blunt's secretary. Good morning, Mr. Selby. I'm so sorry, Monsieur Poirot, and so is Mr. Blunt. He has been called to Downing Street, a consequence of the series of events last evening. I did ring you at your flat... But I was told you had already left. Oh, please do not concern yourself, Mr. Selby. Mr. Bunt commissioned me to ask you if it would be possible for you to spend the weekend with him at Action, his house in Kent. 
He would be happy to call for you in the car tomorrow evening. Tomorrow? Mr. Blunt really is most anxious to see you. Then, of course, I accept. Mr. Blunt will be delighted. If he calls for you at about a quarter to six, will that be... Oh. Good morning, Mrs. Oliveira. Oh, Mr. Selby, did Mr. Blunt give you any instructions about the garden chairs? I meant to talk to you about them last night because I knew we'd be going down to... Who is this person? Do you know Mrs. Oliveira, Monsieur Poirot? I'm delighted to make your acquaintance, madame. Oh, how do you do? Of course, Mr. Selby, I know that Alistair is a very busy man. It's quite all right, Mrs. Oliveira. He told me all about it. I have given instructions for the chairs to be taken down to action. Well, that really is a great load off my mind. If the weather forecast is she correct... She clucked fine, on and on, and rather like a hen. Like the good fat hen who rhymes with ten. Like but there was something really about her voice. I understand there will only be ourselves down there this weekend. Monsieur Poirot will also be joining us. Mr. Blunt has been kind enough to invite me. What a very odd thing for him to do. He particularly told me he wanted a quiet family weekend. Mr. Blunt is most anxious that Monsieur Poirot should come. Well, he didn't mention it to me. I hope it won't interfere with our plans. Mother, do come along. Our lunch appointment is for 1.15. I'm coming, Jane. Don't be so impatient. We'll get a move on. Oh, hello, Monsieur Poirot. Monsieur Poirot is coming down to Exham for the weekend. Oh, I see. Why are you doing that, Monsieur Poirot? It was a kind thought of your uncle's. When did he ask you? Jane! Stay away. You're not welcome. <clears throat> Come along, Jane. Keep out of what doesn't concern you. Then we will call for you a little after six, Monsieur Poirot. I was trying to make sense of what I had just heard. Mrs. Oliveira's words were almost identical to the words the woman had spoken on the telephone, and the voice was almost the same. But surely that empty-headed fat hen could not be involved in the conspiracy? I don't think the fellow was shooting at me particularly. And anyway, the poor chap hadn't the faintest idea how to aim. Just one of those half-crazed students. There's no harm in them, really. They just get worked up and fancy that a pot shot at the PM will alter the course of history. There have been several attempts on your life, have there not? Oh, it all sounds very melodramatic when you put it like that. Someone did send me a bomb by post not long ago. It wasn't a very efficient bomb. These fellows want to take on the management of the world. What kind of a business do they think they could make of it when they can't even put together an effectual bomb? Perhaps they consider practicality to be rather irrelevant. I'm sure they do. But I mustn't go on talking shop. I've been looking forward to hearing a few of your adventures, Monsieur Poirot. I read a lot of thrillers and detective stories. Do you think any of them are really true to life? The house at Exham was charming and furnished with quiet good taste. The cooking was excellent and the wine distinguished. But none of this could entirely distract me from the icy disapproval of Mrs. Oliveira and the unconcealed antipathy of her daughter. All through dinner there was a sense of tension and unease which became particularly apparent when Blunt happened to remark on the absence of Helen Montresor, who was, it seemed, his second cousin. Is Helen not dining with us tonight? Dear Helen has been overtiring herself in the garden. She looks so exhausted, I suggested it would be far better for her to go to bed early than to dress up and drag herself over here. She quite saw my point. Well, I suppose you're right. I thought it might make a bit of a change for her at weekends. 
Helen is such a simple soul. She likes to turn in early. After dinner, Mr. Blunt asked me to wait for him in the study while he discussed a matter of business with Mr. Selby. From the dining room, I could not help but hear the voices of Mrs. Oliveira and her daughter. Alistair much likes the way you disposed of Helen Montresor, Mother. Nonsense. Alistair is too good-natured. Poor relatives are all very well, and he's very generous to let her have a cottage on the estate rent-free, but there's no need to have her up to the house for dinner every weekend. I don't think he ought to be imposed on. She's very proud in her way, you know, and she's so devoted to the garden. That shows a proper respect. The Scots are very independent, and one respects them for it. And then Alastair Blunt came in and closed the study door. The reason why I asked you down here, Monsieur Poirot, apart from the pleasure of your company, of course, is that I'm not at all happy about the situation over this Sainsbury Seal woman. Because they're concerned to protect Sylvia Chapman's husband, Albert, he's involved in some vital undercover work, I gather, the authorities have called off the hunt and the police have got their hands tied. But that's not good enough for me. I want to know the truth and you're the man to find it out for me. You aren't hampered by officialdom. What do you want me to do, Mr. Blunt? I want you to find the woman. Alive or dead? You think she may be dead? If you want my opinion, but it is only an opinion, then yes, I think she is dead. What makes you think that? Oh, it would not make sense to you if I said it was because of a pair of woman's stockings in a drawer. You are a strange man, Monsieur Poirot. Perhaps. But I am mathematical orderly and logical, and I do not like distorting facts to support a theory. I've been turning the whole thing over in my mind, and the business gets odder the more I think about it. I can't help feeling there must be something pretty sinister behind it all. Oh, yes. There is certainly something behind it all. And I'm pretty certain the Sainsbury Seal woman can never have really known my wife. It was just a pretext to speak to me and it can't have just been to do with some petty subscription to a missionary society. I can't help feeling it was engineered somehow, meeting me like that on the steps of Morley's house. But why? What was the point of it? Yes, that is what I have asked myself. Was it perhaps to draw you to someone's attention? No, but the idea is childish. And why should anyone wish to point me out? That morning in the dentist's chair, the day of Morley's death, did he make any mention of Miss Sainsbury Seal? She was his next patient, after all. No, I'm sure I should have remembered it if he had. Nor this other woman, Mrs. Chapman? No, nothing. You see, Monsieur Poirot, we didn't speak about people at all. We mentioned old roses, gardens needing rain, that sort of thing. And no one came into the room while you were there? Yes, another dentist fellow looked in briefly, chap with an Irish accent. Ah, yeah, that would have been Mr. Riley, his partner. And there is nothing else you can remember? No. Morley appeared absolutely normal. As he did to me. Uh, did you happen to notice a young man who was in the waiting room that morning? Yes, I did. A rather nervy and restless character. Mm. Did he try to engage you in conversation at all? No. Who is he, anyway? His name is Howard Rakes. Should I have heard of him? Have I met him somewhere? I do not think so. He is a friend of your niece, Miss Oliveira. Oh, one of Jane's friends. I gather that her mother does not approve of the friendship. I don't suppose that would cut any ice with Jane. I understand that Mrs. Oliveira brought her daughter over from America to get her away from this young man. Oh, it's that fellow. 
A most undesirable young chap, I believe. Mixed up in all sorts of subversive activities. I believe he made an appointment that morning in Queen Charlotte Street solely in order to get a look at you. To try and get me to approve of him? Well, no. <laughs> I understand from Miss Oliveira the idea was that he should be induced to approve of you. Of all the damn cheek. Mm, it appears you are everything of which he disapproves. He's certainly the kind of man I disapprove of. A tub-thumping young hothead who'd be better off doing an honest day's work. Will you permit me to ask you an impertinent and very personal question? Far away. In the event of your death, what are your testamentary dispositions? Why do you want to know that? Because it is just possible that it might be relevant to the case. Nonsense. Perhaps. Who benefits by your death? Chiefly, the St. Edward's Hospital and the Royal Institute for the Blind. Ah. In addition, I have left a sum of money to my niece by marriage, Mrs. Oliveira, an equivalent sum, but in trust, to her daughter Jane, and a substantial provision to my only surviving relative, Helen Montresor, who was left very badly off, and who occupies a small cottage on the estate here. I trust you're not suggesting that any of these ladies are plotting to do away with me for my money. I suggest nothing, nothing at all. But you will undertake the other commission for me. The finding of Miss Sainsbury's seal? Of course. Good man. What have you been telling my uncle? What lies have you been whispering into his ear? Do you know what I think of you, Monsieur Poirot? You are nothing but a miserable little snooping spy, nosing around and making trouble. No, mademoiselle. I assure well, I'll you, tell you that... this. You won't find out anything at all. No one is going to harm a hair of my precious uncle's head. He is safe. He'll always be safe. Safe and smug and prosperous without an ounce of imagination or vision. I loathe the sight of you, you bloody little bourgeois detective. Bourgeois? Hmm. I could hardly deny that my outlook on life was essentially bourgeois. But what had I done to provoke such a savage attack? I looked into the dining room where Mrs. Oliveira sat playing patience. She gave me the kind of look she might have bestowed on a black beetle and went on with her game. Red knave on black queen. Alas, it seemed that nobody loved me. I walked out into the garden and breathed in the smell of night-scented stocks. I simply could not begin to get a grip on the mystery. What lay behind the mysterious mission of Albert Chapman? What secret was Molly's made Agnes holding back? But the most unaccountable obstacle was the problem of Maybell Sainsbury Seal herself, for if the facts were true, then nothing would ever made sense. <sighs> was I perhaps growing old? Or could I no longer rely on my little grey cells? In part three of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Mr. Barnes, Patrick Godfrey, Mrs. Oliveira, Joanna McCallum, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, Georgina Morley, Caroline Wildey, Selby, 
Trevor Rawlins. The music was composed by Tom Smale. One, two, buckle my shoe is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. And you can hear the penultimate episode at the same time next week. Well, now here on BBC Radio 4, we return to our Agatha Christie serial. The celebrated banker, Alistair Blunt, had invited me to his country house in Kent to discuss the mystery of Miss Sainsbury's seal. She had disappeared on the evening of the day Mr. Morley, her dentist and my own, had been found shot dead in his surgery. A month later, a body had been found in a block of London flats, dressed in her clothes, the face battered beyond recognition. But the dental record showed that the corpse was that of Sylvia Chapman, the wife of an agent in the Secret Service, and the involvement of the Secret Service suggested that perhaps the intended victim in all this was Alistair Blunt himself. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. The following morning I was up early and I walked out into the garden. I'm puzzled as to what exactly you have in mind, McAllister. Are you trying to recreate some kind of tropical swamp? A woman with cropped hair, evidently Blunt's relative Helen Montresor, was talking to the head gardener. Closer at hand, a young man was digging and delving. Eleven, twelve, I said to myself. I could not see his face, but something about him seemed strangely familiar. I crept round the side of the kitchen garden to get a closer look at him. It was Frank Carter, the fiancé of Mr. Morley's assistant, Gladys Neville, but he had told her he was working at a secretarial job for ten pounds a week, so why was he digging away, not very expertly, in the garden of Alistair Blunt? It's very kind of you to concern yourself about me, Alistair, but I would prefer not to accept any invitation to the house while Mrs. Oliveira and her daughter are staying with you. Julia's a tactless woman, you know that, Helen, but I'm sure she doesn't mean to... In my opinion, her manner to me is very insolent, and I'll not put up with it. (sighs) Women really are the devil. Oh, good morning, Monsieur Poirot. May I uh, have a quiet word with you? Of course. Come and have a spot of breakfast. Uh, You have a young gardener whom I imagine you have taken on recently. That's right. My third gardener left about a month ago and we took this fellow on. Do you remember where he came from? McAllister, the head gardener, engaged him. What is his name? Well, really don't remember. Sunbury, something like that. Now, would it be a great impertinence to ask what you pay him? Not at all. Two pounds fifteen, I think it is. Not more? Certainly not more. Might be a bit less. Oh, now that is very curious because you've you seen see... the Times this morning, Uncle Alistair. A lot of people seem to be out for your blood. You mustn't believe what you read in the papers, Jane. Archerton has the wildest ideas about finance. If the government let him have his way, England would be bankrupt within a week. 
Don't you ever want to try anything new? Not unless it's an improvement on the old. But how can you tell if you don't give new ideas a chance? All the waste and inequality and unfairness. Don't you ever want to do anything about it all? We get along pretty well in this country, Jane, all things considered. What we need is a new heaven and a new earth. And you sit there eating kidneys. Well, don't be surprised when the revolution comes. I don't like it, you know, Monsieur Poirot. Everyone seems to be talking this kind of rubbish nowadays. And it's nothing but so much hot air. And I feel as if I were the last of the old guard. If you were removed, what would happen? Removed? What a curious way to put it. But I'll tell you this. A lot of damned fools would try a lot of very costly experiments. And that would be the end of our economic stability and solvency. In fact, this England of ours as we know it. He had all my sympathy. I too approved of solvency and stability. For the first time, I realized fully what Alistair Blunt stood for. And I felt afraid. Now, Monsieur Poirot, I've finished my letters and done enough to give myself a little break. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you on a tour of the garden. Ah. It's the one achievement in my life of which I'm really proud. And so, for the next twenty minutes, I trudged after him while he held forth on the rare species of alpine plants. But all I could think of was the pain in my feet caused by my elegantly tight patent leather shoes. We moved towards the line of the laurel hedge, where someone was hard at work with a pair of shears. Look at the vista from here, Monsieur Poirot. Hmm. It's almost as though the hills over there had been designed to be part of the garden. And can you smell the sweet Williams? What the devil was that? Drop the gun! Drop it, you bastard! Ah! Let go of me! I didn't fire! It's got nothing to do with me! Hasn't it? So what were you trying to do? Frighten the birds? Well, one of you tell me exactly what's going on. Your gardener just took a pot shot at you. I got hold of him before he could have another go. It's not true! I was clipping the hedge when I heard the shot and the gun suddenly fell right at my feet. I picked it up. That's only natural, isn't it? And then this bastard jumped on me. The gun was in your hand and it had just been fired. Let's hear what the great detective has to say about it. I guess there are several more shots left. Hmm? Five more, to be precise. Oh, then, Sunbury, or whatever your name is. The man's name is Frank Carter, and she is certainly not a gardener. You've had it in for me all along, trying to tie me up with trick questions, worming information out of Gladys. But it's none of it true. I never shot at him. Then in that case, who did? There is no one here but ourselves. Miss Montresor was here a little while back. Well, she's not here now, and I hardly think that Helen what would have... What the hell's going on? Howard, what are you... I've been saving your uncle's life. I is this one of your silly jokes? No, no, Jane, it's no joke. He seems to have arrived at a very opportune moment. This is Howard Rakes, Uncle Alistair. He's a friend of mine. So, you're the young man I've heard so much about. Well, I must thank you. Well, what's happened? I heard a shot. Oh, you are right, Alistair. Rakes! What the hell are you doing here? How dare you? Howard has just saved Uncle Alistair's life, Mother. This man took a shot at him, but Howard grabbed him and took the gun away from him. You're bloody liars, all of you. My dear Alistair, thank God you weren't hurt. It must have been the most terrible shock. It's made me feel quite faint. Do you think I could have a little brandy? Of course, Julia. Let's get back to the house. Can you bring this fellow along, Mr. Rakes? I'll get on to the police right away. It's all a lie. You know it is. You're strangely quiet, Monsieur Poirot, for a world-famous detective. 
It isn't thanks to you that Mr. Blunt is still alive. This is your second good deed of this kind, is it not, Mr. Rakes? Well, yes, I do seem to be making a habit of it. But there is a difference. Yesterday, the man you caught was not the man who fired the shot. You made a mistake. <laughs> and he's making another mistake now. I didn't fire that shot. What exactly are you doing here at Action, Mr. Carter? You span a fantastic story for Miss Neville about an important job in the country at ten pounds a week, and I find you here as an undergardener at barely a quarter of that sum. I'm working as an undercover agent. That sounds a very likely story. It's true. I was approached by the Secret Service and told to report here as a gardener. I was instructed to keep them informed about what the other gardeners and the servants were doing. I was warned there was some kind of conspiracy against Mr. Blunt. And that's why you tried to kill him, I suppose. Let's go back to the house and you can tell your story to the police. It was pathetically unconvincing, of course. Just the kind of story that a thoroughly inadequate character like Frank Carter would invent. But why did he persist in repeating it? Mr. Rakes, on the other hand, had benefited considerably. When a man has saved you from an assassin's bullet, you can hardly forbid him the house. Come in. Surprised to see me, Monsieur Poirot? Mm -hmm. I've been keeping my eye on you all evening. I didn't like the thoughtful way you were looking. Why should that worry you, my friend? I figured maybe you were finding certain things just a bit hard to swallow. And if so? Well, I decided I'd better come clean about that business in Downing Street. You see, I happened to be watching Blunt coming out of number 10, and I saw Vasco take a shot at him. Now, I happen to know Vasco. He's a bit excitable, but a really nice kid, and there was no harm done. The bullet had gone far wide, so I decided to put on a bit of a show to help Vasco get away. I grabbed hold of a shabby-looking specimen just by me and shouted out that I'd got the gunman. But the cops were too smart. They were on to Vasco like a flash. That's how it was. And today? That was different. Carter was the only man on the spot, and he'd got the pistol in his hand. You were very concerned to preserve Mr. Blunt from harm? <laughs> I suppose it must seem a bit strange after all the things I've said about him. I think Blunt is a guy who ought to be put down in the interest of progress and humanity. Oh, he's a nice enough old boy in his way. But the moment I see someone aiming a gun at him, I jump in and interfere. Just goes to show how illogical the human animal is. I just thought I'd come along and explain how things were. The next day, I accompanied Mr. Blunt and his family to morning service at the village church. Can't let the parson down, you know. I listened to the words of the psalm the choir was singing, and suddenly... It was as if the scales had fallen from my eyes. The 
the proud have hid a snare for me. They have spread a net by the wayside. For the first time, I saw clearly the trap into which I had so nearly fallen, and all those conflicting and contradictory facts began to settle into a pattern. The text for my sermon this morning is taken from the first book of Samuel, chapter 15. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Doesn't it ever worry you that wherever you happen to go, people start popping off guns at one another? <laughs> I've often thought that if you sat quietly in your apartment all day long, the crime rate in this country would be halved. Anyway, I gather you caught young Mr. Carter red-handed. It was perhaps all a little too convenient. You always have to make difficulties for yourself when simple, plain facts are staring you in the face. But that's not the reason I rang you up. You remember Mr. Riley? Molly's partner? We've been keeping an eye on him, and it's come to our notice that he's about to leave the country. There's no way we can prevent him, but I thought you might drop in on him, find out where he's going for his holidays. Oh, no, Monsieur Poirot, it's not a holiday, exactly. I'm off to America, and I don't know whether I'll be planning on coming back. You are abandoning your practice here, then? It would be nearer the mark if you said it was abandoning me. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. That doesn't really worry me. When I think of the debts I shall leave behind me unpaid, I'm a happy man. I've got good qualifications, and I shall be better off starting all over again. Did you agree with the verdict of the coroner's court on your partner's death? I did not. You don't think he made a mistake in the strength of the anaesthetic? If Morley injected that Greek with the amount they said he did, he was either drunk or he wanted to kill the man, and I've never seen Morley drunk. You mean it was deliberate? I'm not saying that. Why should he kill a man he'd never met before? Did you see Morley on the day of his death? No. You're sure? Well, I'd not say that, but I don't remember. You did not perhaps... Go up to his room about 11.35 when he had a patient there? D You're quite right, I did. There was a technical query about some instruments he'd ordered, but I was only there for a moment. There is something I always intended to ask you. After Mr. Riggs had walked out on you, what did you do with your vacant half-hour? What I always do with vacant half-hours. Mixed myself a drink. And after Mr. Barnes left... I understand you had no patience after half-past twelve. I didn't go up and shoot Morley, if that's what you're suggesting. Mind you, you've only got my word for it. But if you think that's why I'm off to America, you've got another thing coming. I'll show you the stack of unpaid bills, if you don't believe me. Riley had been Mr. Barnes's principal suspect, the key figure in the conspiracy against Alistair Blunt. But I found it difficult to imagine him in that role. The case still hinged, to my mind, on the enigmatic figure of Miss Sainsbury Seal. 
Jap had managed to trace a woman who was an old friend of hers, a Mrs. Adams, who lived in a quiet road just off Hampstead Heath. I cannot tell you what a relief it was to hear it wasn't Maybelle's body they found in that trunk. A case of mistaken identity was what they said. Some poor woman called Sylvia Chapman. Now, you knew Miss Sainsbury Seal when she was in India, did you not? Uh, do you know whether she was acquainted with Mr. Alistair Blunt or his wife while they were out there? Mr. Blunt, the famous banker, do you mean? Mm -hmm. I remember he stayed with the Viceroy, but I'm sure if Maybell had met him, she would certainly have told me. I'm afraid one does usually mention the important people. We're all such snobs and name-droppers at heart. Mm -hmm. But she never spoke of the Blunts, Mrs. Blunt in particular. Well, she was a millionaireess, wasn't she? who'd been married to some Italian prince. I don't believe Maybelle ever knew anybody like that. Her friends were all very ordinary people, like me. Oh, madame. <laughs> she knew a lot of people who were involved with the missions, of course. She was so concerned over her good works, Monsieur Poirot, but she found it harder and harder to get subscriptions out of people, what with the rises in income tax and all that. I remember she said to me once... When one knows what money can do, the wonderful good you can accomplish with it, well, really, I feel I could commit a crime to get hold of it. That shows how strongly she felt, doesn't it, Monsieur Poirot? When did she say that? Do you remember, madame? Oh, must have been about three months ago. I do so wish I knew what had become of her. I feel sure she must have lost her memory, don't you? You know, I'm beginning to wonder if I've been wrong about this. If Maybell really felt that strongly about raising money for her missions, do you think she could have been in some racket with Amberiotis after all? They came on the same boat from India. They lunched together at the Savoy. But raising money is one thing. Participating in extortion is quite another. Surely it would be completely out of character. Yes, but what is her character? On the one hand, we have this rather dotty lady whose life revolved around play-acting and elocution lessons and good works. And on the other, we have a woman who appears to have murdered Sylvia Chapman in cold blood, battered her face in and left her in a trunk to rot. Do you think we could be dealing with some kind of split personality? Is Miss Sainsbury Seal really a female Jekyll and Hyde? I walked home by way of Regent's Park, turning over in my mind the possibilities suggested by what Jap had said. Were there, in fact, two Miss Sainsbury Seals? By the water, a couple were sitting together beneath a tree, Jane Oliveira and Howard Rakes. Why, Monsieur Poirot, you do turn up in the most unexpected places. Rather like a jack-in-the-box. I trust I do not intrude. Oh, no. That's rather a matter of opinion. Be quiet, Howard. You need to learn manners. What's the good of manners? They won't save the world. You'll find they kind of help the world along. I can get by because I'm rich and moderately good-looking, but... I'm in no mood for small talk, Jane. Guess I'll take myself off. Goodbye, Monsieur Poirot. Goodbye, Mr. Aches. Oh, alas, mademoiselle, the proverb is true. When you are courting, two is company, but three is too much, n'est-ce pas? Courting? What a word. Thirteen, fourteen maids are courting. What's that? Oh, just a silly nursery rhyme that keeps coming into my head. Monsieur Poirot, I want to apologize to you. 
I thought you'd wormed your way in with my uncle so that you could come down to Exham to spy on Howard. But after you'd gone, uncle told me that he'd invited you there because he wanted you to clear up the mystery of this Sainsbury seal woman. Is that right? Yes, mademoiselle, it is. So I'm sorry for what I said that evening. I really thought you'd got it in for Howard because of his politics. Even if it were true, I was an excellent witness to the fact that Mr. Rakes bravely saved your uncle's life by springing upon his assailant and preventing him from firing another shot. You've got a funny way of putting things, Monsieur Poirot. I can never be certain whether you're serious or not. At the moment, I am very serious, Miss Oliveira. Have you found that woman my uncle wanted to know about? Let us say that I know where she is. Is she dead? I have not said so. She's alive, then? I have not said that either. She's got to be one or the other, surely. Actually, it is not so simple. I think you just like making things difficult. Hmm. It has been said of me, mademoiselle. Howard wants me to marry him. At once. Without letting anyone know. He says it's the only way I'll ever do it. What do you think, Monsieur Poirot? Why ask me to advise you? What kind of advice do you think I'd get from the others? Mother would scream the place down. Uncle Alistair would tell me that Howard was an odd fish and that there was no sense in rushing things. And your friends? I haven't got any friends. Howard's the only real person I've ever met. Even so? Why me? Because you've got a queer look on your face. As though you were sorry for something. Isn't it funny? It's a warm, sunny day, and suddenly I feel cold. I thought I'd just pop in to tell you what a blooming marvel you are. How do you do it? Will you perhaps take some refreshment, a little whiskey, maybe? A whiskey would go down very well, thanks. Here we have a lovely, straightforward case of suicide, but H.B. says it's murder, and damn it, all it is murder. So you agree at last? Well, nobody can say I'm pig-headed. I don't fly in the face of the evidence. So I've come to make the amend honourable, as you call it. Ah, thank you very much. Well, here's to Hercule Poirot, who was always right. Oh, no, mon ami. So here it is. The pistol that Frank Carter tried to shoot Blunt with is a twin to the one that killed Morley. But Frank Carter? This is not possible. What's the matter with you, Poirot? First you insist that it wasn't suicide but murder, and when I come round to tell you we agree with you, you don't believe it. You really think that Morley was murdered by Frank Carter? Well, it all fits together. Carter had a grudge against Morley. He came along to Queen Charlotte Street that morning to have it out with him. But I understood he had come to tell Miss Neville about the job he had been offered. He didn't go along to see about the job until the following day. He admits as much. And as for the job, well... He says he was interviewed by a woman from the Secret Service who told him she was known as GH5. She had red hair and a lot of makeup, and the light was rather dim, I ask him. Pure Phillips Oppenheim. Uh, mm. uh, yes, George. Miss Neville. Yes, I will see her. Show her in in five minutes, if you will. In that case, I'm off. I don't really need hysterical young ladies at the moment. I'll let myself out the back way. You've got to help us, Monsieur Poirot. There's no one else who can. But surely Mr. Carter has a solicitor. Lawyers are so difficult. They won't say anything straight out. The trouble is that Frank's one of those black shirts. You know, the people who march about with banners and who do those silly salutes. 
And they work up young men like Frank and goad them on to do stupid things. And they think they're being so wonderful and patriotic. And you think he may have been egged on to shoot that Mr. Blunt? He swears he never did and that he'd never even seen the pistol before. And now they're saying he killed poor Mr. Morley, but he couldn't have done. Even so, he did not tell the truth. He did not come round to tell you about his new job that morning. So what was he doing there? To tell you the truth, I think he'd been drinking, and he wanted to have it out with Mr. Morley. Of course it was foolish of him, but I know he isn't a murderer. You've got to help us. If only I could feel that you were on our side. But I could be on no one's side. I could be only on the side of truth. And the following morning there came a letter. A letter from Morley's housemaid, Agnes Fletcher. Hoping as you will forgive me for troubling you, but I'm very worried and don't know what to do. I know that perhaps I ought to have told something, but as they said the master had shot himself, I thought it was all right, and I wouldn't have liked to get Miss Neville's young man into trouble. Never really thought for a moment that he'd done it, but now I see that he has been took up for shooting at a gentleman in the country, and perhaps he isn't quite all there, and I ought to say what I saw. I don't want Miss Morley to know about all this, so I will be in the donkey cart tea rooms in Hartford High Street every day this week at 2.30 p.m. 15.16. It took the best part of 20 minutes for this particular maid in the kitchen to come to the point. First, I had to hear how neither her mother nor her father had ever had any trouble with the police, despite the fact that he had been proprietor of licensed premises, and how, if Agnes were to get mixed up with the law, they would probably both die of shame. She was into her third cup of tea before she came up with what she wanted to say. It's the morning of Mr. Morley's death. I've been wondering if I dare run downstairs to get the post. Alfred only brought it up if it was for Mr. or Miss Morley, and I was wanting to see if there was anything for me. And Miss Morley didn't like me going down to the hall during business hours. So I thought I'd go out on the landing to see if I could catch Alfred taking a patient up to the master. So that he could tell you if there was a letter for you? Oh, yes, sir. And it was then I'd seen him, Frank Carter, halfway up the stairs, our stairs above Mr. Morley's surgery. He didn't see me, and he was standing there looking down. He seemed to be listening for something. What time was this? Oh, he must have been getting on for half past twelve, and well, I was wondering whether I should tell him that Miss Neville had gone away for the day when he suddenly seemed to make up his mind, and he went down the stairs very quick and went along the passage to the master's surgery, and oh, I thought to myself, Mr Morley won't like this at all, and I thought there might be a row, and then, of course, afterwards, when I heard the master had shot himself... It was so awful that it drove everything out of my head. But later you decided to keep quiet about it. Well, like I said, sir, I didn't want to get into trouble with the police. But when I read in the papers that he'd been arrested, I thought he might be one of those madmen who go around killing people, and that perhaps he did shoot the master after all. In part four of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Riley, Stephen Tomkinson, Mrs. Oliveira, Joanna McCallum, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, 
Howard Rakes, Robert Portal, Gladys Neville, Sophie Arnold, Frank Carter, Dominic Colchester. Mrs. Adams, Amanda Walker, Agnes, Teresa Gallagher. The psalm was sung by the cast, directed by Tom Smale, who composed the music. One Two Buckle My Shoe is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. And the mystery ends at the same time, half past eleven, next Monday. Now, though, it's time for the final part of our Agatha Christie serial. The powerful financier, Alistair Blunt, had commissioned me to find the elusive Miss Sainsbury Seal. She had been the maid-in-waiting of my nursery rhyme for far too long, and it was time she was brought out into the open. But, in the meantime, that unsavory young man, Frank Carter, had been arrested for the attempted assassination of Mr. Blunt and for the murder of my dentist, Mr. Morley. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. So now you want to see Frank Carter? You are unwilling? Oh, I shan't make any objection. No good if I did. Who's the Home Secretary's little pet? You are. And you've got half the cabinet in your pocket. What do you want to see Carter for? To ask him whether he murdered Morley? Yes, my friend. That is exactly the reason. And I suppose you think he'll tell you if he did? He might tell me, yes. <laughs> you've got a bee in your bonnet about Carter, haven't you? For some reason or other, you don't want him to be guilty. Oh, no, my friend, there you are wrong. It is the other way round. I do want to believe him guilty. I suppose you've got hold of something which more or less proves him to be innocent. So why are you so anxious to see him? To satisfy myself. So they've sent you along, have they? Suppose they think you can trick me into saying something stupid. Got your police pals listening in, have you? You are wrong. This is a private interview between you and me. Well, you don't expect me to believe that, do you? Now, do you remember a girl called Agnes Fletcher? Never heard of her. She was the Morley's housemaid at 58 Queen Charlotte Street. So? On the morning of the day Morley was shot, this girl, Agnes, happened to look over the banisters from the top floor flat. She saw you on the stairs, waiting and listening. Presently, she saw you go along to Mr. Morley's room. The time was then 26 minutes past 12. That's rubbish. The police have put her up to it, or you have. Now, listen to me, Mr. Carter. This girl will go into court and tell her story, and she will be believed because she is telling the truth. Now, tell me what happened when you went into Molly's room. I was never there. She's making it up, or you are. Mr. Carter, I do not care for you very much. You are a bully and a liar, and you would be no loss to the world. I have only to stand back and let you persist in your story, and you will almost certainly be hanged for the murder of Morley. It's all a pack if of lies. If you did not kill him, your only hope is to tell me the truth of what happened that morning. All right. I'll tell you. If you're deceiving me, I hope you'll rot in hell. I did go into his room. 
I waited till I could be sure of getting him alone. A foreign chap came out, but I thought I'd wait a bit longer just to be certain. Then another gent came out and went down, and I nipped in as quick as I could. I didn't knock. I was all set to have it out with Morley. Yes? It was lying there, dead. I couldn't believe it at first, but he was dead all right. His hand was stone cold, and I saw the bullet hole in his head had a black crust of blood round it. So what did you do? Well, I knew they'd say I'd done it. I wiped the door handle with my handkerchief, and I went downstairs as quick as I could, and I let myself out. And that's the truth. I swear it. You've got to believe me. I do believe you. But you mustn't tell them. They'll hang me for a cert if they know I went in there. On the contrary. Your story has confirmed what I know to be the truth. You can leave it now to me. You don't look very well, Monsieur Poirot. Sometimes I do not care for the things I have to do. You've got your man, I see. Frank Carter, I'm rather surprised. I was certain it was one of those counter-espionage mix-ups. I didn't expect it to be a private case. But you are wrong. The trouble is that one goes by one's own experience. I've been mixed up in the Secret Service business for so long, I'm inclined to see it everywhere. You have observed in your time a conjurer offer a card. Have you not what is called forcing a card? Yes, of course. That is what was done here. Every time I thought of a private reason for Morley's death, a card was forced on me. Amberiotis, Alistair Blunt, the unsettled state of the country... As for you, Mr. Barnes, you did more to mislead me than anyone. I suppose that's true. But as far as I knew, Carter had left the house long before Morley was killed. Carter was there at 26 minutes past 12. He actually saw the murderer. Then it wasn't Carter. But he did see the murderer. And did he recognize him? No, Mr. Barnes. He only saw him from above. But if he had... He would not have believed it. So, Monsieur Poirot, have you found her? Yes, Mr. Blunt. I have found her. You look tired. Yes, I am tired. And it is not pretty what I have to tell you. Is she dead? Well, that depends on how you like to look at it. My dear man, a person must be dead or alive. Miss Sainsbury's seal must be one or the other. Ah, but who is Miss Sainsbury Seal? Do you mean there isn't any such person? Oh, no. The difficulty is that there are two. Is this some kind of joke? Oh, no. I have never been more serious. But let us put the matter into some kind of perspective. From the very beginning of this case, I have, as I believe the expression is, been led up the garden path. What on earth do you mean by that? One of the patients in Morley's waiting room on the day of his death was a Mr. Barnes. He had no intention of misleading me, but he was convinced that the intended victim that morning was yourself. Well, that's a bit far-fetched, surely. Was it? After all, Chief Inspector Jap had been called in. It is not customary to assign a leading officer from Scotland Yard to the apparent suicide of a mere dentist. I see what you're driving at. And it is true, is it not, that there are various groups of people to whom it is vital that you should be, shall we say, removed. That's true enough, I suppose. And there is a curious lavishness about this case. Three deaths in one day, after all. That suggests that human life is of no consequence. 
a recklessness which appears to point to a major crime against a public figure. Appears? Every public man has a private life also. That was my mistake. I forgot the private life. There could exist private reasons for killing you. You had, for example, relations who would inherit your fortune when you died. Even so, Monsieur Poirot, I hardly think they would carry it as far as murder. And then came the supreme instance of what I call the forced card, the purported attack on you by Frank Carter. If that attack was genuine, then it could only have been a political crime. But was there another explanation? The man who rushed up and seized Carter, Howard Rakes, he could easily have fired the shot and tossed the pistol at Carter's feet so he would automatically pick it up. Oh, but surely... He's a bitter enemy of everything you stand for. More than that, he is the man who might marry your niece and inherit part of your fortune. Even so, I do not see Howard Rakes as a plausible assassin. But there was another possibility. That the shooting incident was a charade staged for the benefit of Hercule Poirot. During the service in the church at Exham, the following morning, I listened to the words of the psalm. The proud have set a snare for me. And it was like a revelation. Had a snare been set for me? And if it had, who had laid it? For the first time, I began to see the case the right way up, and I realized that Miss Sainsbury's seal was the beginning and the middle and the end of the case. I always suspected that she was somehow at the center of it. But I need to go back to the point where the matter began. My first sight of her shoe. Her shoe? After my appointment with Morley on that fatal day, I was standing on the doorstep of his house when a taxi drew up. The door opened, and a woman's foot appeared, wearing a new patent leather shoe with a large ornate buckle. It belonged to a rather badly dressed middle-aged lady. And this was Miss Sainsbury Seal? If you wish. And then she caught the buckle of her shoe in the cab door, and it was wrenched off. I picked it up and returned it to her. Later that same day, I went with Chief Inspector Jap to our hotel to interview the lady. And had the buckle been sewn back on? It had not. On that same evening, the lady walked out of her hotel and did not return. That, shall we say, was the end of part one. And part two? Began a month later, when Chief Inspector Jap summoned me to King Leopold Mansions to take a look at a decayed and disfigured body that had been found in a fur chest. And the first thing I noticed was... A shabby old shoe with a large buckle. Well? You do not take the point? It was a shabby, well-worn shoe. But Miss Sainsbury Seal was wearing new shoes when I encountered her outside Molly's surgery. She was wearing new shoes when Jap and I talked to her later that day, and she was wearing new shoes when she was last seen entering King Leopold Mansions. She never left there again. Yet the shoes on the corpse were, as I said, well worn. One does not wear out a pair of shoes in a day. Forgive me, Monsieur Poirot, but I can't see that it's important. Can you not? 
and then I studied the corpse itself. I could not understand why the face had been so ferociously battered as to render it unrecognisable. Must we go over all that again? We know the answer. The dental records proved the body was not Miss Sainsbury's seal, but someone called Sylvia Chapman. Mm, again, there was something wrong. We discovered that Mrs. Chapman took a size five in shoes. Miss Sainsbury's seal wore a ten-inch stocking, which meant that she took at least a size six shoe. If the body were that of Sylvia Chapman, dressed in Miss Sainsbury's seal's clothes, then her shoes would be too big. In fact, the shabby pair of shoes on the body fitted very tightly. I'm sure you wish to demonstrate how meticulous your investigation has been, but for the life of me, I can't understand where any of this is leading. It leads to the fact that, as I told you, there were two Miss Sainsbury seals. The pious but rather silly woman who was devoted to good works, whom you encountered two months ago outside Morley's house, and the ruthless, cold-blooded woman who apparently murdered Sylvia Chapman. So what, in your view, actually happened? The porter at King Leopold Mansion said that Miss Sainsbury Seal came there twice to Sylvia Chapman's flat, but the first time, a week or more before Morley's death, was in fact the last. Go on. After that, the other Miss Sainsbury Seal took her place and dressed in her clothes, except for the shoes, which were too large for her. So she bought a new pair of patent leather shoes with big buckles and took a room at the Glengarry Court Hotel. She played the part of Miss Sainsbury Seal there for a week, wore her clothes, talked with her voice, encountered me at the door of Morley's house on the day of his death, was interviewed by Chief Inspector Jap and myself. That evening she walked out of her hotel and was last seen by the porter at King Leopold Mansions at the door of Sylvia Chapman's flat. So are you telling me that the dead body in that flat was Miss Sainsbury Seal after all? May we? It was a very clever double bluff. But surely the dental evidence... Uh, uh, uh. Now, we come to the heart of the mystery. Morley could not give the evidence because he was dead. It was his dental records that established the identity of the dead woman, and they had been tampered with. But how could that happen? Oh, very easily. Both Sylvia Chapman and Miss Sainsbury Seal were Morley's patients. With Morley out of the way, all that had to be done was to relabel the charts, exchanging the names. I know you have a great reputation, Monsieur Poirot, but all I can see is the fantastic implausibility of the whole thing. If I understand you correctly, you are implying that Miss Sainsbury Seal was deliberately murdered and that poor Morley was also murdered to prevent him from identifying her dead body. But why? Why should anyone go to such fantastic lengths to get rid of a perfectly harmless middle-aged woman? Let us go back to the first time Miss Sainsbury Seal came on the scene, several weeks before the murder, when she encountered you and your niece outside Morley's house and claimed to have been a good friend of your wife. A claim that was patently untrue, though I have no idea what her purpose was. But consider for a moment. What if her story were true, and she had in fact known your wife? In that case, your wife must have been the kind of person Miss Sainsbury Seal could have known, someone of her own station in life, a person involved in missionary or charity work, or to go back a little further, an actress. Therefore, 
the person she told you had been her good friend could not have been the fabulously wealthy Rebecca Arnhold, for she had never moved in that kind of society. What exactly are you suggesting, Monsieur Poirier? What I am suggesting, Mr. Blunt, is that when you married Rebecca Arnhold, you were already married. You are only a junior partner in one of her many banking concerns. She fell in love with you, and dazzled by the vista not so much of wealth as of power, you suppressed the fact of your marriage and deliberately committed bigamy, and your real wife acquiesced in the situation. And who is this real wife supposed to have been? She has gone by various names, but for the moment let us restrict ourselves to her alias as Sylvia Chapman. King Leopold Mansions was a convenient location not far from your house on the Chelsea Embankment. You borrowed her surname from a real secret agent so that it would give support to her story about a husband who was involved in intelligence work. Everything was going very well until chance brought you face to face with a woman who remembered knowing your real wife long before you married Rebecca Arnold. No, in itself this would have mattered very little, but when Miss Sainsbury Seal came home from India earlier in the year, she happened to be on the same boat as Mr. Amberiotis. He helped her over something, uh, fuss over luggage perhaps, and his kindness was repaid some time later when he happened to meet her in a London street. He took her out to lunch, and she babbled away to him about her meeting with Mr. Blunt and having known his wife many years ago. Amberiotis was, among other things, a blackmailer, and he saw in you a gold mine. Please go on, Monsieur Poirot. It was easy enough for you to persuade the Home Office that Amberiotis posed a security threat and to keep track of all his movements. You learned that Amberiotis was to visit a dentist, your own dentist, recommended to him by the real Miss Sainsbury Seal. You seem to be suggesting, Monsieur Poirot, that I am possessed of almost supernatural powers. Perhaps you are, Mr. Blunt. Having disposed of Miss Sainsbury Seal, your next step was to dispose of Molly himself. You shot him just as you were leaving his surgery and then pressed the buzzer. The boy brought up the fake Miss Sainsbury Seal, your wife. The pair of you carried Molly's body into the adjoining office. You then exchanged the files of Sylvia Chapman for those of Miss Sainsbury Seal. You put on a white linen coat and pressed the buzzer for Alfred to show up Amberiotis. I know from my own visits that the boy was never allowed to enter the surgery. He opened the door and let the patient pass in. He would not have seen you. You are a great storyteller, Monsieur Poirot. But are you really expecting anyone to believe that Amberiotis didn't know who I was? Amberiotis had never met Morley, and he would only have had the briefest glimpse of your face. You explained to him that it would be best to freeze the gum and injected a dose that would kill him within a few hours. With such a strong anaesthetic, he would hardly have been aware whether you were doing anything to the tooth or not. He leaves suspecting nothing. You and your accomplice drag Morley out of the office and arrange his body on the floor, and it is all so easily accounted for. Morley realizes he has given Amberiotis an overdose and takes his own life. 
But then she realize that I am involved in the case. I must be convinced at all costs that this is a public affair. And so you invite me down to Exham and stage the charade of Frank Carter's attempt on your life with a pistol, a twin to the one with which you shot Morley, which was rigged to go off as he was clipping the hedge, all for the benefit of Poirot. Don't misunderstand me. But how much of this is pure guesswork? And how much do you actually know? I have a certificate of the marriage of Alistair Blunt and Gerda Grant at an Oxford register office sixteen years ago. Frank Carter saw you going down the stairs of Morley's surgery just after twenty-five past twelve. But he only saw you from above and did not recognize you. How fair of you to mention that. Anything else? Yes. The woman who calls herself Helen Montresor, but who is in fact your wife Gerda, was arrested this afternoon. Ah. That rather tears it. The real Helen Montresor, your distant cousin, died in Canada seven years ago. Gerda and I rather got a kick out of it all, you know. I married her without telling my people. She was acting in repertory at the time, and my family were terribly straight-laced. We agreed to keep it quiet, and she went on acting. And it was through her acting that you both met Miss Sainsbury Seal? Yes, she was in the same company as Gerda. She knew about us, of course. But Rebecca Arnholt never suspected anything? Goodness, no. I wish I could make you understand about it. I had the chance of marrying a queen and playing the part of Prince Consort, or even King. I loved Gerda. I didn't want to get rid of her. So we agreed to keep our marriage secret. And it all worked out quite splendidly. I liked Rebecca enormously. I was genuinely sorry when she died. But you kept up your relationship with your real wife at the same time. Oh, yes. And we got a secret thrill out of our meetings. Gerda had a repertoire of seven or eight characters. Including Mrs. Alfred Chapman? Yes. We used to meet in Paris and Rome. We even went to Norway once. And then I passed her off as my cousin, Helen Montresor. It was exciting and kept romance alive. And then you were recognised in the street by Miss Sainsbury Seal. And she told Ambariotis. You must see, Monsieur Poirot, that something had to be done. It wasn't only myself. If I was ruined and disgraced, my country would suffer as well. Now, I've done something for England. I've kept it solvent and I've kept it safe from dictators, from both fascism and communism. And now that the whole of Europe's in the melting pot, I'm needed more than ever. And a damned double-crossing foreigner was threatening to destroy my life's work. We were sorry about Sainsbury Seal, but we had to silence her. Gerda asked her to call at the flat in King Leopold Mansions and slipped Medinol in her tea. It was quite painless. And what about Morley? A cruel necessity. I see. So, Monsieur Poirot, what about it? As I told you, your wife has been arrested. And now it's my turn. That was my meaning, yes. I've killed three people. So, presumably, I ought to be hanged. But you've heard my defence. 
I sincerely believe that I am essential to the continued peace and well-being of this country. You agree, surely? Oh, yes. You stand for the things that, in my view, are important. For sanity and stability and honest dealing. Then can't you just retire from the case? And your wife? I've got a good deal of pull. Mistaken identity. That's the line to take. But three human beings are dead. And Carter may hang for Morris' murder. He'd be no great loss. Sainsbury Seal had the mind of a hen, and Ambriotis was a crook and a blackmailer. And Morley? I'm sorry about Morley. He was a decent fellow. But after all, there are other dentists. Hmm. That is where you and I do not see alike, Mr. Blunt. For me, the lives of those four people are just as important as your life. You're wrong. No, I am not wrong. You are a man of great natural honor and rectitude, but within you the love of power blinded you to all else, so you sacrificed these lives and thought them of no account. Within a matter of months... Europe may be plunged into the most terrible conflagration. The safety of the whole nation depends on me. I am not concerned with nations, monsieur. I am concerned with the lives of private individuals who have the right not to have their lives taken from them. So that's your answer? Yes. That is my answer. If you'd care to come with me, Mr. Blunt. So, have you concluded your interview, Monsieur Poirot? Yes, mademoiselle. It is all over. What do you mean by that? Mr. Alistair Blunt has been arrested for murder. I never thought you'd have the nerve to go through with it. I reckon he'd buy you off. No, I never thought that. The world is yours now, the new heaven and the new earth. In your new world, mes enfants, let there be freedom, but let there be pity. That is all I ask. We will not forget that, Monsieur Poirot. As I set off home along the deserted street, a figure came scurrying after me. So what line did the great man take? He admitted everything and pleaded justification. He said this country needed him. So it does. But I remembered a quotation from the Bible that I heard in Blunt's church at Exham. What was that? Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Yes. Quite apposite. I take the tube here, but there is something I should tell you. What is that, Mr. Barnes? I should have told you before. QX-912. I'm Albert Chapman. That's partly why I was so interested. I knew, you see, that I'd never had a wife. He hurried off down the steps to the underground, and I remembered the words of the nursery rhyme. Nineteen twenty, my plate's empty. 
In the final part of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Mr. Barnes, Patrick Godfrey, Frank Carter, Dominic Colchester, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, Howard Rakes, Robert Portal. The music was composed by Tom Smale. One, two, buckle my shoe was dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. And you may like to know that this BBC radio dramatisation of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe will be available on audio cassette and CD from the 1st of November. <laughs>